0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, archaeologist Gerald T. Milanich addresses controversies of Florida archaeology from the work of C.B. Moore in the late 1800s to the discovery of the Miami Circle 20 years ago. How did that septic tank get there? Did it go with
1: the apartments built in the uh, 1940s? Did it go with one of the earlier brickle houses that was there? Was there perhaps a circular structure of some kind built over that septic tank?
0: We'll discuss a secret NASA postage stamp held under lock and key, We were right in the middle of the space race, so any information had to be incredibly secret because we didn't want that information to be leaked to the Soviet Union. And we'll talk about historically Black Jones High School in Orlando. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Dr. Gerald T. Milanich is Curator Emeritus of Archaeology at the Florida Museum of Natural History, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the University of Florida, and one of the most respected historical archaeologists in the state. In his most recent book, Handfuls of History, Stories about Florida's Past, Milanich discusses pre-Columbian Florida, colonial period people and events, and the 19th century shipwreck of the steamship City of Veracruz. Milanich explores the origins of archaeology in Florida with Clarence B. Moore and stirs up some controversy as he questions the authenticity of the Miami Circle. He also offers advice to future archaeologists. Well, when I started out in archaeology as an undergraduate on an archaeology field school
1: that was in the Lake Okeechobee Basin, probably there were a double handful of professional archaeologists working in the state. Now there's well over a hundred. But even more important, there are archeological programs at the University of West Florida, Florida Atlantic, North Florida, Central Florida, FSU's had the oldest one, University of Florida, uh, other places. Uh, So there are hundreds of graduate students working in archeology, span writing theses and dissertations. They are so much more sophisticated than I ever was as a graduate student. There are new techniques that we've never had. We are aerial remote sensing, uh, kinds of remote sensing where you pull magic machines across the ground and they help you to see what's underneath it. New ways of recording data, new kinds of analysis, looking at the bones of the animals that the people ate. So I love to go to the uh, annual meeting of the Florida Anthropological Society where the students and others are presenting their papers. It's just Amazing to me how much more we know than we knew 40 years ago. Well, now it's getting close to 50, I guess, uh, when I was just getting started. I'm thrilled about what's going on, and uh, the future is bright indeed. Archaeology in, in Florida, like history, is flourishing. And one of the things that we have in Florida is a long tradition going back into the 40s and 1950s, of archaeologists and historians collaborating on mission research, Spanish colonial research, other kinds of research, and that continues to this day. I love seeing it. I'm I'm thrilled that I got to be a part of this and helping to train the students, and now I have students who have got their PhDs and have students, they have students who have PhDs, and they have, so I have like great grandkids in archaeology. Things are indeed very good for archaeology in our state.
0: In recent years, significant archaeological discoveries have been made in Florida. An Archaic Age Pond Cemetery, similar to the one found at the Windover dig, has been found submerged in the Gulf of Mexico off Manasota Key. What many people believe is the flagship of Jean Rabot, lost in 1564, has been located off of Cape Canaveral. The long-lost terrestrial site of Don Tristan de Luna's attempted 1559 settlement has been found in Pensacola. Modern archaeologists are following in the footsteps of C.B. Moore, who worked here in the late 1800s and early 1900s. As Jerry Milanich explains, archaeologists have a love-hate relationship with Moore. Clarence Bloomfield
1: Moore was a, uh, a rich guy. His father had uh, helped found a paper company that was actually based in Delaware. But C.B. Moore went to Harvard, grew up in Philadelphia, and became interested in both archeology span and photography, I think while he was at Harvard. And beginning in uh, about the 1890s, about 1890, he began traveling to Florida to look at archeological sites. I think that he had vacationed with his family early on near Green Cove Springs in a hotel which I found information on and had a dark room. Maybe that's why he liked it. But he became interested in the shell mounds that were on the St. John's River and decided that he would use his resources to mount expeditions. And so every winter, beginning about 1892 or three, uh, he would travel from Philadelphia, usually by train, uh, come down to say Jacksonville and there he had uh, rented a steamboat. Uh, I think the first one was called the Alligator, and later he builds his own, but every winter he would travel to the south, go to where the steamboat was, uh, get on it, uh, he had some people that came with him, and then they would hire an African-American crew, and they would travel uh, originally the St. John's River, the Ocklawaha, they go around the Gulf Coast, they come up to Crystal River, Florida and excavate, they do the Florida Panhandle, they go up the Mississippi. He traveled almost every navigable river in the Southeast uh, from uh, 1890s way up to about 1920 and excavated literally hundreds, perhaps thousands, of
0: archaeological sites, mainly mounds. While C.B. Moore's documentation was meticulous, his excavation techniques were destructive by modern standards. The good thing that he did was every season he wrote up what he found, and
1: he took wonderful photographs. Uh, He often kept the materials, unless they were like shell tools or something he didn't want. Uh, but we have those materials today, the artifacts. We have his original notes, we have his reports. So we have a lot of information. On the other hand, if those sites still existed today and we dug them with the modern methods that we have, we would have learned a heck of a lot more. The sad thing is that people have abused, they have raided uh, the, and destroyed archeological sites, not only in Florida but other states, beginning well before 1890s And it's doubtful if any of the sites that he excavated uh, would exist uh, today, you know, untouched. They would have been raided. Uh, But many of the sites still do exist, uh, like at Crystal River we can visit those, many around Tampa Bay, Moundville, in Alabama. So we love uh, C.B. Moore for recording all his data. Uh, We hate him because he dug those mounds and obviously destroyed a lot of information too. He's a very, very interesting guy, and I learned that he died, ooh, about uh, 1930 over in St. Petersburg where he was spending winters in a house. And he died in the hospital there that was right next to a mound that he had excavated
0: uh, about 1910 or something like that. Moore dove right into Indian mounds to see what he could find. In his defense, archaeology as a discipline was in its infancy when Moore was excavating in Florida. Clarence Bohr
1: did the best he could, he was a smart guy. And archeology span was just getting cranked up. Uh, He was never really trained as an archeologist, never received no training, but he understood enough by corresponding with archeologists about taking measurements and trying to map a site in three dimensions. So it's, you
0: can try to reconstruct it. A century after C.B. Moore, in 1998, a discovery was made in downtown Miami that became known as the Miami Circle. Archaeologists believe that the circle is evidence of a structure from a prehistoric settlement from 2,000 years ago. Jerry Milanich has reservations about the Miami Circle's age and authenticity. They don't like me
1: a lot in Miami. Uh, when I first was asked by the state to go down there, and uh, I'll never forget, I was on the airplane going down, I was handed a photograph of the Miami Circle, and I said, God, what is that big rectangular thing? Looks like a four by eight piece of plywood right on the perpendicular bisector of the interior of the circle, which is about 28 feet in diameter. And three state officials looked at one another and they said, it's a septic tank. I said, what? Uh, So I think that at that point, the research question should have been, How did that septic tank get there? Did it go with the apartments built in the uh, 1940s? Did it go with one of the earlier brickle houses that was there? Was there perhaps a circular structure of some kind built over that septic tank? It turns out that in South Florida in the past when they had septic tanks and they were put into limestone, you couldn't have a drain field because effluent wouldn't drain through the limestone. So, you simply let the septic tank fill up and the ground would get wet around it. And when it got full, you had the truck come in and pump it out. Well, if you were going to run an inn or uh, a little boarding house, as they did at one of the brickle houses built about 1910 at that site, right beside where that septic tank is, would you perhaps cover it with like a little pergola or round structure to keep your guests who are? all dressed up walking out and sinking into the ground. And so I
0: started looking for photographs. Other people share Milanich's doubts about the Miami circle. Milanich was encouraged by Jack Horkheimer, former host of Stargazer on PBS. Jack called me and said, you know, I I was
1: out to that site and stuff and and, uh, something's funny. And someone sent him a postcard that they got on eBay and said, he said, does this show anything from the site well I wasn't sure so I started doing my research on eBay and buying postcards that showed that area and sure enough one of them may show a round structure that's apparently close to or on top of where that uh, septic tank is so uh, I think what needs to be done still to this day is someone to go back and do more research there but to try to answer the question of when that septic tank was put in and uh, where, what was it attached to? The Brickle House, something else, something else. Uh, that's clearly, it's not a very uh, popular idea, especially in people in Miami who work so hard to get the uh, federal government and, and other agencies, I guess ultimately
0: it might have been the county, to buy the land and preserve the site. Melanich points out that whether or not the Miami Circle is authentic, it is located on top of a significant Tequesta site that was home to a thriving native culture. What's
1: important that sometimes we forget about that site is a circle is one little thing, and that indeed, uh, in the 19th century, people recognized that there was a huge complex of uh, shell mounds, there were burial mounds, village areas, all on both sides of the mouth of the Miami River, Uh, the village that was known in the 16th century uh, as Tequesta. And all that's left of this huge complex archaeological site is that little bit that's now preserved in the Miami Circle Park area. So whatever happens, uh, we've preserved that. Uh, I think that's a good thing for the public and certainly for our understanding of the
0: past. Gerald T. Milanich is one of Florida's most respected historical archaeologists. His latest book is called Handfuls of History, Stories about Florida's Past. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, watch archived editions of our television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. You can also find web extras for episodes of this radio program, including photographs of many of the things we discuss. That's myfloridahistory.org. It's gone. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Florida has always played a pivotal role in our exploration of space from the earliest days of the space race. Yeah, that's right, and in particular, Florida's east-central region, Cape
2: Canaveral, the uh, small landmass that juts out into the Atlantic was really the perfect spot to uh, begin launching at least test flights. And then when we started with uh, manned flights in the early 1960s, it was a perfect choice. And of course, uh, what is now known as the Kennedy Space Center and the NASA facilities out at Cape Canaveral really in their infancy in the early 1960s. But this area and the state in particular played a very pivotal role in the beginnings of uh, what we now call the space race. We were competing against the Soviet Union to not only put a huge human being in space, but eventually to get to the moon, which, of course, was accomplished at the end of that decade in 1969. But there was a series of missions that essentially started here in Florida, uh, were launched into space, and and many of the recovery efforts were done in the Atlantic, not far from uh, off the coast of Florida, some in the Pacific. But all of these engineers, there were a lot of people involved in the process outside of just the astronauts there were a number of mechanisms that were uh, in place to help facilitate not only the space launches but also the the infrastructure and facilitate uh, these programs
0: now in the early days of the space race and and even still today much of the space program uh, is conducted with a certain amount of secrecy right oh that's
2: absolutely right and as i said before we were right in the middle of the space race so any information had to be incredibly secret because we didn't want that information to be leaked to the Soviet Union and potentially be used against us and to beat us essentially in the space race. But there were other programs of, as well that were tied to uh, the space industry that were, I would argue, equally as secretive. And one in particular actually has to do with the Florida Historical Society in, in kind of a strange way, but it goes all the way back to the beginnings of the space uh, race here and the beginnings of, of manned spaceflight, specifically in 1962. And I'm talking about, the uh, Friendship 7 mission. This was the third of the Mercury missions to to put a human being in space. Uh, John Glenn was the astronaut who piloted the mission. He was the first American to orbit the Earth. He orbited the Earth three times. The mission lasted almost five hours. He launched from Cape Canaveral, was recovered uh, safely from the Atlantic. But that's not what's interesting about this story. Earlier before the the flight was uh, launched, the U.S. post office decided to issue a commemorative stamp, but they were going to do it entirely in secret. And the whole idea was to issue this stamp in secret, have it produced, have them distributed, but nobody would know about it until John Glenn landed safely uh, and the Friendship 7 capsule landed safely. Now, this had never been done before in, in U.S. history, so it was a bit of a gamble. But at the time, they thought it was worth it because there was so much popular support for the space program, and this was a way to commemorate all of these astronauts and the engineers and all the folks who were involved in those efforts. So they set about a few months before designing, uh, printing, and then distributing a commemorative stamp. And the stamp was a four-cent stamp, and it simply said, Project Mercury, U.S. Man in Space. And it had a small capsule. There were uh, several colors, including white two shades of blue, and you can see a little bit of yellow on the capsule itself as the sun is shining on the capsule, and you can see the capsule orbiting around the air. So it's kind of a beautiful design. All of the design work was done completely in secret. In fact, the uh, designer had to work from home, and the engraver worked when everybody else went home. So after 5 o'clock, he came in and actually engraved the dies that would be used to actually print and, and create the stamps. But then all the stamps had to be distributed, and they came to Brevard County, to Cape Canaveral. Now, there was a problem because they wanted to issue the stamps and also issue a first-day cancellation in Cape Canaveral. But there was no post office in Cape Canaveral. So we had another problem. They had to use the closest post office, which was in Cocoa, in downtown Cocoa. It was an old building that was actually built by the WPA and still utilized as a post office in the early 1960s. So they actually had special cancellation machines uh, loaded up in a van from the Cocoa post office, brought out to the middle of Cape Canaveral. And as soon as they got word that John Glenn landed safely, they began stamping these special issue cancellations at 3.30 p.m. on February 20th, 1962. And as soon as that happened, uh, the word went out that they could announce and and unlock these secretive bags that had literally been held under lock and key. Nobody knew what was in these bags because the the problem was if Glenn did not successfully return, they of course couldn't issue these commemorative stamps. They would have had to have destroyed the tens of thousands of stamps that had been created. But luckily he he survived. It was a success. They opened up the bags and, and started
0: selling. And within
2: a few hours, hundreds of thousands of these first issue cancellations were sold.
0: Now, as you alluded to back in the 1960s, during the space race, this building, the Library of Florida History, was a post office, and this is the post office that uh, played this pivotal role in space history, right? That's absolutely right. The headquarters of the Florida Historical Society started its life
2: as a post office in 1939, was a post office in the 1960s. And these special, super-secretive uh, stamps uh, originally came here under lock and key and were held in our safe, which is now home to our rare book collection, and they were guarded under secrecy, and the postal inspector came here to Coco loaded up the machinery, brought them out to Cape Canaveral. They actually also canceled some of the stamps right here in Cocoa, and all of the stamps went on sale right here in our building. So the, the first of these Project Mercury stamps were uh, sold right here in our in our building, which is now part of the Library of Florida History. So it's kind of all come full circle.
0: Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers. Established in 1895, Jones High School is Orlando's historic African-American school. Holly Baker is a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida.
3: I'm a graduate of Jones High School, class of 1971, and I'm just always willing to do what I can to get back into the school. Uh, because the school was a foundation. When you leave Jones, you have left there with a quality education that was always emphasized because of the great teachers that we had, the great principals that we had, and the connection. And we all looked out for each other. I can see there were juniors and seniors led the path for me, and then some of them would go into the field of education and return as teachers. So it really just kind of gave a sense of a future vision as far as why I want to give back, because that's, for me, it was given to me, and as a person, I truly believe I have to give it back.
4: That was Walter Hawkins, the president of the Jones High School Historical Society and an alumnus of Jones High School in Orlando. I recently sat down with Walter Hawkins and Osmere Lewis, a history student at the University of Central Florida. They talked with me about the Jones High School Historical Museum. Walter Hawkins told me about the history of the museum.
3: Jones High School was established in 1895, and part of what we wanted to do uh, as we came into the 1990s was have a celebration recognizing 100 years, the centennial of Jones High School, which was uh, done in 1995. From that centennial celebration, which was 100 years of great things that happened at Jones, was a discussion of creating a museum that will have the artifacts, talk about the history of Jones, talk about the great things that was part of the historical Jones High School. And that's why it came about. There were six individuals that came together because of all of the celebrations that Uh, was part of the centennial. Just people were bringing artifacts, bringing, just talking about stories of Jones and the years they were there. And they said, why not create this museum where we can capture all of this data and be able to highlight it from years to come?
4: Osmere Lewis recently interned at the Jones High School Museum and told me more about it.
5: The museum is, it's a space at the Jones High campus, and it houses a lot of material about Jones that was curated by Audrey Reichert. She was a former teacher there that, she had a hand in everything that was in it and wrote uh, a bunch of histories of Jones, and she pretty much put the whole thing together. And in the museum, there's spaces where we see pictures of uh, principals on the wall, and there's also band directors, Uh, such as Chief Wilson and all of his accomplishments. And this trophies for football players as well. And along with that, there's uh, yearbooks in the museum as well. It's a lot of information about how Jones got to where it is. It documents the movement from the Callahan Center with the first schoolhouse that was there. There's pictures that highlight its movement to uh, the location that they have now off of Rio Grande. And uh, the museum, it's mainly visual, And it deals a lot with photographs, and then, in my opinion, the museum is catered more towards alumni. And in order for them to feel that they were a part of the museum, they'd like to see pictures of people that they know and people that they've dealt with and they'd like to see themselves in the museum. That's the main draw of the museum, if I had to pick one thing, would be the photos on the wall that uh, visitors could come to and they could point and say, hey, that's my principal on the wall, or I went to school with them, they were in my class.
4: The Jones High School Museum and the University of Central Florida recently worked together on Marching Forward, a documentary film about the Jones and Edgewater High School marching bands. In 1964, the city of Orlando came together to fund their trip to the World's Fair in New York. I asked Osmere Lewis what it was like working on the documentary film in a class he recently took at the University of Central Florida.
5: The experience working on uh, Marching Forward was, uh, it was really eye-opening for me. I really liked it because it was a combination of the two things that I want to do, and that's like film and history. It's like a classroom outside of a classroom where I was learning information about Orlando that I'd never learned before. And it was this black history and just history of the Paramore neighborhood that I don't think I would ever learn just taking class at UCF that would be focused on that. It, I think it would be impossible to do that. But I just thought it was a very interesting experience just to be able to learn about uh you know, the community that I'm in, and also being able to apply what I've learned being an undergrad student and, you know, writing research papers and learning how to look for sources. It was very interesting to finally be able to look for sources for something that wasn't a paper and something that you'd put on screen.
4: Walter Hawkins also talked with me about where the Jones High School Museum is headed in the future.
3: Well, just really emphasizing not just Jones High School, but also kind of emphasizing the African-American community, which is the key to all of it, because many of those folks grew up in the African-American community. And Jones was one of those folks in that wheel that was very important. So that's, to me, is how we want to see this thing go forward.
4: This interview was conducted as a part of Every Tongue Got to Confess, the podcast of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. You can find the Every Tongue Got to Confess podcast online. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.